0: We interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins.
1: My guest today is Charles Murray. Dr. Murray is the W.H. Brady Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of many books, including one of the most important books ever written in the welfare state, Losing Ground. His latest book is The Curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead, Do's and Don'ts of Right Behavior, Tough Thinking, Clear Writing, and Living a Good Life. Dr. Murray, welcome to The Dead Dialogues. I'm happy to be talking to you. Now, much of your work, you're deeply concerned with the issue of virtue and how government and social forces either encourage virtue or discourage it. But I want to start with your new book, and because here your concern is with the individual and what a young person in particular should do to live a good and successful life, quite apart from whether there are obstacles put in his way. So... Why don't we start with the question, how would you define success, and what do you think the biggest misconception is young people have about what a successful life is?
0: Well, the way I define success, I guess, is on the basis of, uh, in my own life, uh, two things, which I think apply to a lot of other lives as well. And first is finding a vocation, finding something you, you love to do and learning how to do it well. And the second thing is to find a soulmate for for sharing life with. Uh, now, in my case, those two have been the, the dominant uh, definitions of success. I broaden that I broaden that slightly uh, for people in general. I think if you consider the, the the deep satisfactions in life, the ones that when you get to be my age, I'm seventy one. Uh, are the things that you look back on and you and make you proud of who you've been and what you've done. I think there are four domains. Uh, two of them are vocation and family, which I just alluded to. Uh, the, the other two are community, uh, being engaged in one's community, and the fourth is faith. Uh, it's not necessary to be deeply engaged in all four of those to lead a successful life, in a sense. But I think you have got to have at least a couple, and uh, and, and and I would, I, I measure my own success in terms of where I stand on on those four domains.
1: Now, your book is kind of addressed to the person who is ready to set out in a career and is in effect then taking responsibility for his own success and happiness. But you also comment on what is at least arguably, a widespread phenomenon in our culture today, which is entitlement. In effect, the idea, I don't have to take responsibility for my success, I'm owed it. Now, why do you think this phenomenon is so widespread today, and why is it so destructive for a person who actually wants to achieve a successful life?
0: Well, I I blame the baby boomers for a lot of the things that have gone wrong over the last several decades, and and this is clearly a case where the baby boomers themselves came to adulthood in the 1950s and 1960s, um, being told they were the center of the universe. And they, they bought into that big time. And so they themselves have uh, got, got into the habit, and I think that a lot of it was passed along to their children, of this kind of, uh, of a, a self-regard, which is more self-indulgence, than any kind of true um, self-regard in, in, for example, the way that Ayn Rand would talk about it. It, it, it is, it is a, it, it's a kind of notion that I'm so wonderful that the world should immediately recognize it. And I think it's especially accentuated among a particular subgroup. And that uh, consists of the children of upper middle class, parents who have always gone to good schools, who transfer from the good schools to uh, uh, good colleges. Uh, They get lovely internships during their college careers, and they go seamlessly from them into uh, good professional careers. Uh, they, They tend to come out of this, I think, with a very strong sense of, I'm special, I'm wonderful, and why don't people recognize it right away? Why is this bad? Well because satisfaction depends crucially on having done things of which you can legitimately say, I did it, that if it hadn't been for me and what I did, such and such an outcome wouldn't have occurred. That, is, that has nothing to do with a generalized good opinion of yourself. It has nothing to do with self-esteem. It has everything to do with actually accomplishing real things for which you have taken responsibility. And a crucial additional aspect of that is, taking responsibility also means that there is the risk of failure. And it means taking responsibility for things that go wrong as well as right. Uh, The the way I put it in in my own favorite book among the books I've written, a book called In Pursuits*. Is that the responsibility for the consequences of one's actions is not the price of liberty it's one of the rewards of liberty it's not a bug it's a feature yeah, to put it in more contemporary language
1: one of the rationalizations that we often hear from people for not taking responsibility uh, is that the deck is stacked against them and that ability isn't rewarded um, indeed you know, we've been told consistently that really success is a matter of luck. Um, One of the most interesting sections of your book, I think, is titled Standing Out Isn't As Hard As You Think, which in effect communicates the complete opposite message. But uh, can you explain a little bit about why you say that, that standing out is not as hard as you think?
0: Well, a little background is my own experience when I was 22, 23, 24 years old. Uh, When I would look ahead at my life and uh, working in whatever organization I was, and I had the sense of being just an anonymous member of the workforce and I'd have to have some kind of lucky break to succeed. And I discovered as I got older, it looks completely different when when you're not at the bottom of the organization, but you're at the top. And that truth is, that good help is really hard to find. And by that, I don't mean brilliant help. I mean people who come to work every day, work hard, are competent, are cheerful, and uh, stick around as long as it takes to finish the work without complaining about it. Those are really simple things to do. And it's amazing uh how few people do them so that's that's why I I wrote that tip in in, in the sky guide say you just do those things and I guarantee you're going to get noticed by the people around the place and, and you're going to get promoted and that includes going to work at really um, dreary jobs I've I have a someone I I happen to know who uh graduated from a fine college Couldn't find uh, the job of her dreams. Went to work as a $10 an hour barista at a uh, high-end emporium in New York City. And uh, she did nothing more than the things I described. And she was managing 30 people, an entire section of the store. Um, And why? Because getting
1: noticed is not as hard as you think. So then what would be your advice to, say, a 22-year-old who hasn't had a great education and comes from a bad neighborhood and doesn't have much money? What, what are the first sort of steps he should make in order to try to make something of his life?
0: I think exactly the same things that people who do have educations, good educations have. Now, I don't want to trivialize this. You specify this as someone who's 22 years old, so we're saying, no, this, this uh, young person doesn't have a college degree, right? Right. Um, in, in one sense, I'll say it's a he. Uh, in one sense, he has a problem that the upper-middle-class graduate of the college doesn't have, doesn't need to have, which is he may have to go out and get further training in order to have a, the kind of vocation that he wants. However, in practice, in practice, how many 22 year olds coming out of good schools uh, have a vocation that they, that they are skilled for? How many of them have skills that they can take to an employer? Uh, and the employer will hire them because they're skilled at something the employer needs. And the answer for most liberal arts graduates is they don't have any such things. In an odd kind of way, The disadvantaged person you just described should be able to move ahead uh, occupationally just as fast as the college graduate who's had a much more advantaged life. However, here's the problem. He can't, and the reason he can't is because he doesn't have that college degree, and the college degree has taken on a uh, screening role. So he won't be able to get an interview. To uh, get a lot of jobs that hard work and simple intelligence would enable him to do, because he doesn't have that magic piece of paper. Uh, so, in answering your question, I'm giving two answers. One is actually he shouldn't be in a worse situation. Let's say he has the same the same level of ability. He shouldn't be in a worse situation than the the typical uh, liberal arts graduate. In reality, he is because he doesn't have that piece of paper. And I guess in some ways I have to say you have to live in the world as you find it. And so probably he'd better try to compensate for that in some ways. But the other part of me says that this is one of the most truly pernicious aspects of today's life, this artificial importance of the BA.
1: One of the most refreshing parts of your book and uh, your work in general is that you take morality seriously and in general, although I think you know we part ways uh, in exactly how we think about morality, you come at it from a Aristotelian perspective in which it's part of achieving happiness and a good life. Um, now we can't go too much into that here, but I wanted to highlight one issue that you raise, and that's the issue of being judgmental. Now we live in an age where being uh, being not non judgmental, it's treated as self evidently good. But you argue that it's not simply bad, but here's a quote from the book. Of the many pernicious aspects of today's academic culture, I think the worst is its celebration of non-judgmentalism. You want to elaborate on that?
0: Yes, and, uh, and here is where uh, I am firmly in uh, the camp of Ayn Rand on, on this regard. To be a human being means to exercise one's rational faculties. And that requires making judgments. That the only way you can avoid making judgments is by refusing to think about something. And that is a denial of what makes us human. Um, If you get down to specifics, um, I I use one in the book that I, I, I hope will get people into my argument, because as soon as I start to talk about things like uh, uh, sexual morality or or any other kind of big moral issue, then lots of people will just leave it alone because they don't want to go there. So I take the example of um, of great art, and I'm saying, okay, suppose you compare uh, a nude uh, painting by Titian with a uh, nude painted on black velvet. And uh, it's okay, I say in the book, it's okay for you to say, well, I prefer the one painted in black velvet. I like that one. Okay, you can't argue about taste. What you do not have the freedom to say is you can't make a judgment about which of the two is a better painting. That's just a matter of opinion, because there you're dealing with, with, with bodies of knowledge and information and standards that have to be come to you have to come to grips with them. And you have to do your very best to make judgments about these bodies of knowledge. Um, When I said most pernicious of all the aspects of uh, current academia, it is this notion of it's only a matter of opinion. With a whole lot of topics, that is lazy. It is refusing to take on one's responsibility to make the best possible judgment based on the most possible knowledge uh, about what is good and bad, uh, right and wrong, uh, virtuous and evil.
1: And I actually suspect that it has a lot to do with the rise of entitlement and entitlement mentality, because the the whole core of it is we can't judge, we can't make distinctions between good and bad and right and wrong. Well, if so, then you can't say somebody has a right because he's earned something, or he hasn't, because it's, well, no, that's your opinion that I haven't earned it. So the, it, that agnosticism runs throughout, I think, and, and really has devastating psychological effects on people.
0: I, I agree, and I would just embroider that thought uh, with, Uh, Well, I'll give you a specific experience. So just a few months ago, I was up at Yale, and I was presenting at the Yale Political Union, which is this very old debating society at Yale. So in the room with me, I had people on the left and people on the right. And we were debating about the effects of the uh, welfare state on on, uh, poor people. And so I was hearing all political points of view. But what was fascinating was the degree to which this extremely privileged set of kids, you know, from the, because overwhelmingly they came from affluent backgrounds and then had their lives set up for them. But life had been such for them that they see themselves as being very privileged. They recognize that, and what they have forgotten to notice is the reason they are privileged in most cases is because their parents worked really hard, and their parents achieved something which gave them that money. And so it, the fact that their parents were successful was not a matter of luck. But the way these kids looked at it, the Yale undergraduates, I think an awful lot of them said, Well, gee, here I am in this affluent family, and it was just all a matter of chance. Um, and, and I think that feeds into their unwillingness to make judgments because they are so convinced from their own lives, not really understanding their parents' lives. They're convinced from their own lives that it is a matter of luck.
1: Now I want to turn to a more social perspective, and let me start by asking what is probably a ridiculously wide question, but how would you say the welfare state has affected our ability to pursue and achieve the good life?
0: It has ravaged it. It has ravaged it most especially uh, for the people who don't have a lot of money. I said a few minutes ago that my own favorite book is In Pursuit. Um, and the subtitle is, uh, to, uh, to that is Of Happiness and Good Government. And the thesis of the book is... Uh, uh, the, the Well, the topic of the book is what does the pursuit of happiness consist of? And I talk about the enabling conditions in which which, which enable uh, people to uh, pursue happiness, and the degree to which an expansive government strips life of those enabling conditions. Uh, just to take one example that uh, I use in the book, the satisfactions from family. Uh, it, it, it is one thing uh, to take satisfactions from from supporting one's spouse and children let's say if you're a man at a low-income job because you're putting food in the table and a roof over their heads and you even though you're working at a menial job uh, you are doing something important with your life something genuinely important and you can say to yourself if I quit tomorrow if I walked away my wife and children uh, would be in terrible shape well to the extent you have a really extensive welfare state, the reality is that to work at a low-paying job that's not very much fun uh, is not doing something important with your life. If you walk away, uh, in, in material terms, your wife and children won't be that much worse off, if any, than they are now. You have you have stripped somebody of, of a major source of satisfaction. And the same thing, uh, the same argument occurs with community life um, and, and with uh, a vocational life. So, the, the people that get hurt by the welfare state in terms of the ability to pursue happiness are not people like you and me. Uh, I still have all the satisfactions of family and vocation and community and faith that I want to get uh, for reasons that I will go into now, but there is a systematic relationship between where you are on the socioeconomic pyramid and the degree to which an expansive government denudes your life of a lot of the sources of satisfaction.
1: So why then do you think support for the welfare state is so entrenched?
0: Everything that I've just said requires a whole lot of thinking ahead. And uh, the benefits of the welfare state are right in front of you right now today in the form of a check, or of food stamps, or of an apartment, or you name it, or for that matter, a sugar subsidy, if you're a sugar farmer. Uh, Those are the benefits. They're right there. And for people like me to say, you know what, in the long run, that's really destructive, requires people to take a long-term perspective and in many ways act against their own immediate self-interest. So it's not surprising to me uh, that the welfare state is so, so thoroughly entrenched. Its short-term benefits will trump long-term uh, bad outcomes every time. And, and, that's, and this is one of the things that's problematic for, uh, for, for freedom, which is that there is a built-in, ineluctable, historic tendency for government to expand that is only susceptible to being dealt with by a strictly limited government, in which has enumerated powers. And back in the 1930s, the Supreme Court, in its infinite wisdom, gutted the enumerated powers of the federal government. And once that happened, I think it's—I think what— we have seen since then was inevitable. There was no way to go back home.
1: Well, that leads me then to like bringing in the fact that for a long time Americans resisted a welfare state and they did not accept the idea that one should get the unearned even if it seemed to be in a person's short-term interest. And in your book, Coming Apart, you discuss the the deeply virtuous character of early Americans, and including the aspect that there was a real opposition to being on the dole, even among people who by today's standards are, I mean, unbelievably poor. So mm-hmm. how do you think that changed, or why did that change?
0: We had We had a national ideology. One of the fascinating things when you read about the 19th century uh, observers who came to the United States, Tocqueville was the most famous, but there were many others, was the, the degree of which that every social social class you went to, everybody knew the catechism of uh, enlightened self-interest, that uh, if you were a member of community, it's in your own interest to, uh, to do what we would call good things, uh, because that would ultimately make your own life better. That was thoroughly understood. Uh, the the uh, the evils of expansive government were very well understood. Uh, the idea that if government got involved in trying to solve problems, it would destroy this moral fiber. That was understood, and that went on throughout the 19th century. And then you had uh, the progressive movement in the late. Uh, 19th century that got started among intellectuals and over time it did not persuade the American people as a whole but it did acquire eventually a majority on the Supreme Court uh, during the period of the Great Depression and it's a long story but in a series of a handful of Supreme Court decisions starting in 1937 the government was given the power to spend on the general welfare, which meant government could spend on anything it wanted to, and the Commerce Clause was reinterpreted to permit the government to regulate almost anything. That wasn't voted on. And at the time it happened, the American ethos and ideology was still pretty much in place. But once he lifted those constraints on government, then this whole cycle started whereby... You know, the forbidden fruit was now available to eat in a way that it had not been before uh, the, the enumerated powers were destroyed. So it's a, actually looking back at American history, the amazing thing is that we restrained government for so long as we did about a century and a half. Uh,
1: in another one of your books, In Our Hands, you raise, a, I think, a really critical point about how to think about the welfare state where you say that the real problem advanced societies face has nothing to do with poverty, retirement, health care, the underclass. The real problem is how to live meaningful lives in an age of plenty and security. I think this really brings us back to um, what you talk about in your new book. So can you elaborate on both aspects, both the fact that it's wrong to think about the welfare state in terms of uh, poverty and so on, and the challenges of living a meaningful life today.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I, by the way, I'm delighted that you've understood the way in which a lot of this work I've done is integrated. Uh, in in uh, in Our Hands, which, by the way, proposes that we replace the entire welfare state with a guaranteed annual income for everybody over the age of 21. Um, in In that, I'm trying to say that, look, in the old days, living a meaningful life took care of itself because you know you had to uh, you had to be part of a family because being alone wasn't economically viable. You had to be a, a member of a community because you needed the community to help support yourself. You had to attend to matters of uh, of the meaning of the universe because you could die any moment. And uh, so the the prospect of your mortality was always before you. And and modern life has lifted all of those sort of uh, um, compelling ways in which, without trying, you lived a life that was full of meaning. You are now able, and increasingly able as the IT revolution uh, proceeds, to spend your life passing the time uh, with pleasant occupations. Uh, be they video games or, or just you know, surfing the web or other ways of interacting with a the screen. There are lots of ways in which you can spend your entire life just amusing yourself. And what if, if you want to live a life where you can reach old age proud of who you've been and what you've done, you can't let yourself be seduced by that. Uh, because you will get to be my age at that point and there will be nothing that you can define yourself by. Now, if you go back to those four domains I talked about that are the source of of uh, lasting satisfaction, family, uh, faith, vocation, and community, well, those need to be vital institutions. and And it's as true for people who are advantaged as people who are disadvantaged. You have to have communities that have things that they need to do. You have to have families with responsibilities they need to fulfill. Uh, you have to have all sorts of ways in which you are doing things in which you are responsible for the consequences of your actions. And uh, so In Our Hands has as its title, the concept of putting responsibility for our lives back into our hands, of everybody, everybody. Uh the people who have money. That's the reason for the basic annual income that uh, replaces the entire welfare state. I encourage anyone who's listening to that to uh, go online and buy the very inexpensive uh, e-book version of In Our Hands, uh, because I think that actually, in the long run, something like that solution is going to be the only way to go.
1: Uh, I, in general, hate Uh, questions that amount to prognosticate the future and what is likely to happen. So why don't I ask you this way? What's our best chance at um, fighting some of the pernicious effects of the welfare state today?
0: Well, I'm writing a book where which I lay that out. And uh, without going into any detail, uh, I think it's systematic, massive civil disobedience. (laughs) And what I mean by that is this we now have an expansive state that in many ways is the wizard of oz it has these tens of thousands of regulations uh, but you know what the only way the government can enforce those is by voluntary compliance and uh... and there are ways in which we can ignore a whole lot of the welfare state of the regulatory state and go about our business. And the point of the book is uh, to to present some practical ways in which you can do that, which involve basically uh, using private wealth as a counterweight uh, to 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 the uh, to the regulatory state by providing defense against that state. But I, I don't want to go any further into that. I think that the Wizard of Oz, you pull aside the curtain, and what you have is this. Uh, a bald old guy who doesn't really have that much power against, doesn't have the power to enforce all of his edicts. I think, that, I think the recognition of that uh, opens up a lot of possibilities. Now, uh, what are the chances overall that the United States does not become just like Western Europe as an advanced welfare state? Um, in the short term, Probably not too good, Um, just because the, the, the forces moving us in that direction are so powerful. But strategically, think about it this way. Suppose that wealth continues to increase secularly, as it has now for the last couple of centuries. And that goes on for another 100, 200 years, where we are at levels of wealth that are vastly greater than they are now. I find it impossible to believe that in a world that wealthy, people will still be saying, gee, the way we ought to run our lives is by having huge centralized bureaucracies uh, that prescribe minutely how we're supposed to live our lives. I refuse to believe that that is going to be the long-term solution decided upon by wealthy, uh, wealthy advanced states. So strategically, I'm optimistic.
1: My guest today has been Charles Murray. Dr. Murray, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. You've asked some very good questions. Thanks very much. So I want to go over some of the issues that were raised during this discussion and just give kind of how I think about them. And in particular, I want to talk about this idea of what a successful life consists of. Now, Dr. Murray mentioned four aspects of a successful life, and the first two I definitely agree with. So first and above all, a successful life requires a vocation. That is a meaningful, productive, creative career that allows you to have a sense of purpose in your life and allows you to support your life through your own independent effort. Second, Dr. Murray mentioned uh, romantic love or family. And I think, yes, romantic love is critical for a successful life. Now, Dr. Murray mentioned two other aspects of a successful life. And I want to briefly cover why I would not put them on the list. So he mentions, first of all, community. And certainly it's great to live in a nice community and have friends and neighbors and so on. And especially I think friendship and deep and meaningful friendships are critical. Um, But if we're getting at the essence of a happy life, I don't think that community rises to the same level as work or romantic love. Now, Dr. Murray also included religion, which I would not include in the, the uh, list, but I do think there's something related that, is, um, net, that you do have to include in order to have a successful life, and that is self-esteem. Now, when I say self-esteem, I don't use it in the sense that Dr. Murray used it in the course of our discussion, which was, in effect, an unearned pat on the back. Yeah, I'm a good guy for no particular reason, and I'm entitled to stuff from other people for no particular reason. Rather, what I mean is what Ayn Rand meant, which is a self-estimate, an earned self-estimate that is positive, the view that I am able to live and worthy of living that I uh, can govern my life because I am rational, and that I'm on a quest for happiness and deserving of the happiness that I achieve. And I think that is um, really the key inner element to a successful, happy life. And one way to think about it is that what it really means is it's living up to a moral ideal, And that's why I think what religion is groping towards, because religion claims to offer a moral ideal, and um, the problem is that it's the wrong ideal, in my judgment, and that you do need an ideal, but it's one that comes from a rational code of ethics, which I think is what Ayn Rand offers. Now, in that context, we can think much more clearly about the welfare state, because in thinking about is the welfare state moral, the way to think about it is that you're asking, does it promote or hinder or punish a person pursuing uh, and living a successful life? And if we look at it, and, and you know, we can't cover this just in these few minutes that we have, but, but if we consider everything we've talked about on this podcast, the clear answer is that what the welfare state does is it punishes us for doing the right thing. And rewards us for doing the wrong thing. And this is something that came up in Dr. Murray's comments about... You, it's exactly... Take the issue of romantic love or uh, of family. As he pointed out, that what happens in under the welfare state is that you get rewarded for not doing the things required to help make your family uh, successful. On the other hand... Um, do you get rewarded for making good choices? No. Let's take the issue of career. In career, you, you find a career you're passionate about, and you make, bring home a paycheck in return for that. And what the welfare state does is does it say, hey, good job? No, it says now you owe those who haven't been able to support themselves in a career for whatever reason. So if you do the right things, you get punished. If you do the wrong things or if you fail to achieve something, you get rewarded. And so the welfare state is completely backwards in terms of its, how it, uh, its attitude towards success. And the success then is primarily an individual achievement. It's not something you can redistribute to others. It's not something you can give to others. Yeah, you can give them money by punishing the people who've achieved something, but you can't give them the essence of a successful, happy life. A successful, happy life can only be achieved by the individual. It's only the person who really conceives of an ideal, pursues it rationally, finds a career he's passionate about, takes responsibility of finding and forming and uh, upholding deeply meaningful romantic relationship, that is the happy, successful individual. And the welfare state can contribute nothing to that except for barriers, punishments, restrictions, and shackles. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit EndTheDebtDraft.com, and for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash DebtDraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time.
0: Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.